You're listening to Mysterious Mountains, a production of the West Virginia Humanities Council, where together we explore the imaginary landscape of West Virginia through genre fiction and folklore. To learn for the first time who Romany people really are and what our real history is. Holocaust, slavery, all kinds of horrible things have happened over the past centuries. That's kind of gloomy. The, <laughs> the literary gypsy is fascinating. Everybody wants to be a gypsy because you're free. You don't have to abide by rules. Gypsyitis is a Walt Disney creation of where we're fancy free and, and love to run among the daisies. And this really hurts because it's not serious. And if we are not taken seriously, then the problems we're dealing with will never be taken seriously. My guest this episode is Dr. Ian Hancock, one of the world's most prolific Romani scholars, and he's here to dispel some of the myths about gypsy culture and history, particularly how the Romani are represented in literature and film. But first, the mystery. West Virginia Humanities Council presents... Uncle Abner, by Melville Davison Post. An Act of God, read by Eric Wagoner. It was the last day of the county fair, and I stood beside my Uncle Abner, on the edge of the crowd, watching the performance of a mountebank. On a raised platform, before a little house on wheels, stood a girl dressed like a gypsy, with her arms extended, while an old man out in the crowd, standing on a chair, was throwing great knives that hemmed her in with a steel hedge. The girl was very young, scarcely more than a child, and the man was old, but he was hale and powerful. He wore wooden shoes, travel-worn purple velvet trousers, a red sash, and a white blouse of a shirt open at the throat. I was watching the man, whose marvelous skill fascinated me. He seemed to be looking always at the crowd of faces that passed between him and the wagon, and yet the great knife fell to a hair on the target, grazing the body of the girl. But while the old man with his sheaf of knives held my attention, it was the girl that Abner looked at. He stood, studying her face, with a strange, rapt attention. Sometimes he lifted his head and looked vacantly over the crowd with the eyelids narrowed, like one searching for a memory that eluded him. Then he came back to the face, in its cluster of dark ringlets, framed in knives that stood quivering in the poplar board. It was thus that my father found us when he came up. "'Have you noticed Blackford about?' he said. "'I want to see him.' "'No,' replied Abner. "'But he should be here, I think. He is at every frolic.' "'I sent him the money for his cattle last night,' my father went on, "'and I wish to know if he got it.' Abner turned upon him at that. You will always take a chance with that scoundrel, Rufus, he said, and some day you will be robbed. His lands are covered with a deed of trust. Well, replied my father with his hearty laugh, I shall not be robbed this time. I have Blackford's request over his signature for the money, with the statement that the letter is to be evidence of its payment. And he took an envelope out of his pocket and handed it to Abner. My uncle read the letter to the end, and then his great fingers tightened on the sheet, and he read it carefully again, and yet again, with his eyes narrowed and his jaw protruding. 
Finally, he looked my father in the face. Blackford did not write this letter, he said. Not write it, my father cried. Why, man, I know the deaf-mute's writing like a book. I know every line and slant of his letters and every crook and twist of his signature. But my uncle shook his head. My father was annoyed. Nonsense, he said. I can call a hundred men on these fair grounds who will swear that Blackford made every stroke of the pen in that letter, even against his denial, and though he bring Moses and the prophets to support him. Abner looked my father steadily in the face. That is true, Rufus, he said. The thing is perfect. There is no letter or line or stroke or twist of the pen that varies from Blackford's hand, and every grazer in the hills, to a man, will swear upon the Bible that he wrote it. Blackford himself cannot tell this writing from his own, nor can any other living man, and yet the deaf-mute did not write it. Well, said my father, yonder is Blackford now. We will ask him. But they never did. I saw the tall deaf-mute swagger up and enter the crowd before the mountebank's wagon, and then a thing happened. The chair upon which the old man stood broke under him. He fell, and the great knife in his hand swerved downward and went through the deaf-mute's body as though it were a cheese. The man was dead when we picked him up. The knife-blade stood out between his shoulders, and the haft was jammed against his bloody coat. We carried him into the agricultural hall among the prize apples and the pumpkins, summoned Squire Randolph from the cattle pens, and brought the mountebank before him. Randolph came in his big, blustering manner and sat down as though he were the judge of all the world. He heard the evidence, and upon the word of every witness the tragedy was an accident clean through. But it was an accident that made one shudder. It came swift and deadly and unforeseen, like a vengeance of God in the Book of Kings. One passing among his fellows in no apprehension had been smitten out of life. There was terror in the mystery of selection that had thus claimed Blackford in this crowd for death. It brought our voices to a whisper to feel how unprotected a man was in this life and how little we could see. And yet the thing had the aspect of design and moved with our stern scriptural beliefs. In the pulpit, this deaf-mute had been an example and a warning. His life was profligate and loose. He was a cattle-shipper who knew the abominations indexed by the psalmist. He was an Ishmaelite in more ways than his affliction. He had no wife, nor child, nor any next of kin. He had been predestined to an evil end by every good housewife in the hills. He would go swiftly and by violence into hell, the preachers said. And swiftly and by violence he had gone on this autumn morning when the world was like an Eden. He lay there among the sheaves of corn and the fruits and cereals of the earth, so fully come to the end predestined that those who had cried the prophecy the loudest were the most amazed. With all their vaporings they could not believe that God would be so expeditious, and they spoke in whispers and crowded about on tiptoe, as though the angel of the Lord stood at the entrance of this little festal hall, as before the threshing floor of Ariona the Jebusite. Randolph could do nothing but find the thing an accident and let the old man go. But he thundered from behind his table on the dangers of such a trade as this. And all the time the mountebank stood stupidly before him like a man dazed, and the little girl wept and clung to the big peasant's hand. Randolph pointed to the girl and told the old man that he would kill her some day. 
and with the gestures and authority of omnipotence forbade his trade. The old mountebank promised to cast his knives into the river and get at something else. Randolph spoke upon the law of accidents sententiously for some thirty minutes, quoted Lord Blackstone and Mr. Chitty, called the thing an act of God within a certain definition of the law, and rose. My uncle Abner had been standing near the door, looking on with a grave, undecipherable face. He had gone through the crowd to the chair when the old man fell, had drawn the knife out of Blackford's body, but he had not helped to carry him in, and he had remained by the door, his big shoulders towering above the audience. Randolph stopped beside him as he went out, took a pinch of snuff, and trumpeted in his big, many-colored handkerchief. "'Ah, Abner,' he said, "'do you concur in my decision?' "'You called the thing an act of God,' replied Abner, "'and I concur in that.' And so it is, said Randolph, with judicial pomp. The writers on the law, in their disquisitions upon torts, include within that term those inscrutable injuries that no human intelligence can foresee, for instance, floods, earthquakes, and tornadoes. Now that is very stupid in the writers on the law, replied Abner. I should call such injuries acts of the devil. It would not occur to me to believe that God would use the agency of the elements in order to injure the innocent. Well, said Randolph, the writers upon the law have not been theologians, although Mr. Greenleaf was devout, and Chitty with a proper reverence, and my lords Coke and Blackstone and Sir Matthew Hale in respectable submission to the established church. They have grouped and catalogued injuries with delicate and nice distinctions with respect to their being actionable at law, and they found certain injuries to be acts of God, but I do not read that they found any injury to be an act of the devil." The law does not recognize the sovereignty and dominion of the devil. Then, replied Abner, with great fitness is the law represented blindfold. I have not entered any jurisdiction where his writs have failed to run. There was a smile about the door that would have broken into laughter, but for the dead man inside. Randolph blustered, consulted his snuff-box, and turned the conversation into a neighboring channel. "'Do you think, Abner,' he said, "'that this old showman will give up his dangerous practice, as he promised me?' "'Yes,' replied Abner. "'He will give it up, but not because he promised you.' And he walked away to my father, took him by the arm, and led him aside. "'Rufus,' he said, "'I have learned something. Your receipt is valid.' "'Of course it is valid,' replied my father. "'It is in Blackford's hand.' Well, said Abner, he cannot come back to deny it, and I will not be a witness for him. What do you mean, Abner? my father said. You say that Blackford did not write this letter, and now you say that it is valid. I mean, replied Abner, that when the one entitled to a debt receives it, that is enough. Then he walked away into the crowd, his head lifted, and his fingers locked behind his massive back. The county fair dosed that evening in much gossip and many idle comments on Blackford's end. The chimney-corner lawyers, riding out with the homing crowd, vapored upon Mr. Jefferson's statute of dissents, and how Blackford's property would escheat to the state, since there was no next of kin, and were met with the information that his lands and his cattle would precisely pay his debts, with an eagle or two beyond for a coffin. And, after the manner of lawyers, were not silenced, but laid down what the law would be if only the facts were agreeable to their premise. 
And the prophets, sitting in their wagons, assembled their witnesses, and established the dates at which they had been prophetically delivered. Evening descended, and the fairgrounds were mostly deserted. Those who lived at no great distance had moved their livestock with the crowd, and had given up their pens and stalls. But my father, who always brought a drove of prize cattle to these fairs, gave orders that we should remain until the morning. The distance home was too great, and the roads were filled. My father's cattle were no less sacred than the bulls of Egypt, and not to be crowded by a wagon wheel or ridden into by a shouting drunkard. The night fell. There was no moon, but the earth was not in darkness. The sky was clear and sown with stars like a seeded field. I did not go to bed in the cattle stall filled with clover hay under a hand-woven blanket, as I was intended to do. A youngster of a certain age is a sort of jackal, and loves nothing in this world so much as to prowl over the ground where a crowd of people has encamped. Besides, I wished to know what had become of the old mountebank, and it was a thing I soon discovered. His wagon stood on the edge of the ground among the trees near the river, with the door closed. His horse, tethered to a wheel, was nosing an armful of hay. The light of the stars filtered through the treetops, filled the wheels with shadows, and threw one side of the wagon into the blackness of the pit. I went down to the fringe of trees. There I sat squatted on the earth until I heard a footstep and saw my Uncle Abner coming toward the wagon. He walked as I had seen him walking in the crowd, his hands behind him and his face lifted as though he considered something that perplexed him. He came to the steps, knocked with his clenched hand on the door, and, when a voice replied, entered. Curiosity overcame me. I scurried up to the dark side of the wagon. There a piece of fortune awaited me. A gilded panel had cracked with some jolt upon the road, and, by perching myself upon the wheel, I could see inside. The old man had been seated behind a table made by letting down a board hinged to the wall. His knives were lying on the floor beside him, bound together in a sheaf with a twine string. There were some packets of old letters on the table, and a candle. The little girl lay asleep in a sort of bunk at the end of the wagon. The old man stood up when my uncle entered, and his face, that had been dull and stupid before the justice of the peace, was now keen and bright. Monsieur does me an honor, he said. The words were an interrogation with no welcome in them. No honor, replied my uncle, standing with his hat on but possibly a service. That would be strange, the mountebank said dryly, for I have received no service from any man here. You have a short memory, replied Abner. The justice of the peace rendered you a great service on this day. Do you put no value on your life? My life has not been in danger, monsieur, he said. I think it has, replied Abner. Then monsieur questions the decision? No, said Abner. I think it was the very wisest decision that Randolph ever made. Then why does Monsieur say that my life was in danger? Well, replied my uncle, are not the lives of all men in danger? Is there any day or hour of a day in which they are secure, or any tract or parcel of this earth where danger is not? And can a man say when he awakes at daylight in his bed, On this day I shall go into danger, or I shall not? In the light it is. And in the darkness it is, 
and where one looks to find it, and where he does not. Did Blackford believe himself in danger today when he passed before you? Ah, monsieur, replied the man, that was a terrible accident. My uncle picked up a stool, placed it by the table, and sat down. He took off his hat and set it on his knees. Then he spoke, looking at the floor. Do you believe in God? I saw the old man rub his forehead with his hand, and the ball of his first finger make a cross. Yes, monsieur, he said. I do. Then, replied Abner, you can hardly believe that things happen out of chance. We call it chance, monsieur, said the man, when we do not understand it. Sometimes we use a better term, replied Abner. Now, today Randolph did not understand this death of Blackford, and yet he called it an act of God. Who knows, said the man, are not the ways of God past finding out? Not always, replied my uncle. He gathered his chin into his hand and sat for some time motionless. Then he continued, I have found out something about this one. The old mountebank moved to his stool beyond the table and sat down. And what is that, monsieur? he said. That you are in danger of your life, for one thing. In what danger? Do you come from the south of Europe, replied Abner, and forget that when a man is killed there are others to threaten his assassin? But this Blackford has no kin to carry a blood feud, said the mountebank. And so, cried Abner, you knew that before you killed him. And yet, in spite of that precaution, there stood a man in the crowd before the justice of the peace who held your life in his hand. He had but to speak. And why did he not speak, this man? said the mountebank, looking at Abner across the table. I will tell you that, replied Abner. He feared that the justice of the law might contravene the justice of God. It is a fabric woven from many threads, this justice of God. I saw three of these threads today stretching into the great loom, and I feared to touch them, lest I disturb the weaver at his work. I saw men see a murder and not know it. I saw a child see its father and not know it and I saw a letter in the handwriting of a man who did not write it. The face of the old mountebank did not whiten, but instead it grew stern and resolute, and the muscles came out in it, so that it seemed a thing of cords under the tanned skin. The proofs, he said. They are all here, replied Abner. He stooped, lifted the sheaf of knives, broke the string, and spread them on the table. He selected the one from which Blackford's blood had been wiped off. Randolph examined this knife, he continued, but not the others. He assumed that they are all alike. Well, they are not. The others are dull, but this one has the edge of a razor. And he plucked a piece of paper from the table and sheared it in two. Then he put the knife down on the board and looked toward the far end of the wagon. And the child's face, he said. I was not certain of that until I saw Blackford's ironed out under the hand of death, and then I knew. And the letter. But the old man was on his feet, straining over the table, his features twitching like a taut rope. Hush, hush, he said. There came a little gust of wind that whispered in the dry grass and blew the dead leaves against the wagon and about my face. They fluttered like a presence, these dead leaves, 
and pecked and clawed at the gilded panel like the nails of some feeble hand. I began to be assailed with fear as I sat there alone in the darkness, looking in upon this tragedy. My Uncle Abner sat down, and the old man remained with the palms of his hands pressed against the table. Finally he spoke. Monsieur, he said, shall a man lead another into hell and escape the pit himself? Yes, she is his daughter, and her mother was mine, and I have killed him. He could not speak, but with those letters he persuaded her. The man paused and turned over the packet of yellow envelopes tied up with faded ribbon. And she believed what a woman will always believe. What would you have done, monsieur? Go to the law? Your English law that gives the woman a pittance and puts her out of the courthouse door for the ribald to laugh at? Diable! Monsieur, that is not the law. I know the law, as my father and my father's father and your father and your father's father knew it. I would have killed him then, when she died, but for this child. I would have followed him into these hills day after day like his shadow behind him until I got a knife into him and ripped him up like a butchered pig. But I could not go to the hangman and leave this child. And so I waited. He sat down. We can wait, monsieur. That is one thing we have in my country. Patience. And when I was ready, I killed him. The old man paused and put out his hand, palm upward, on the table. It was a wonderful hand, like a live thing. You have eyes, monsieur, but the others are as blind men. Did they think that hand could have failed me? Cunning men have made machinery so accurate that you marvel at them, but there was never a machine with the accuracy of the human hand when it is trained as we train it. Monsieur, I could scratch a line on the door behind you with a needle and with my eyes closed set a knife point into every twist and turn of it. Why, monsieur, there was a straw clinging to Blackford's coat, a straw that had fallen on him as he passed some horse stall. I marked it as he came up through the crowd, and I split it with the knife. And now, monsieur. But my uncle stopped him. Not yet, he said. I am concerned about the living and not the dead. If I had thought of the dead only, I should have spoken this day, but I have thought also of the living. What have you done for the child? There came a great tenderness into the old man's face. I have brought it up in love, he said, and in honor, and I have got its inheritance for it. He stopped and indicated the pack of letters. I was about to burn these when you came in, monsieur, for they have served their purpose. I thought I might need to know Blackford's hand, and I set out to learn it. Not in a day, monsieur, nor a week, like your common forger, and with an untried hand. But in a year, and years, with a hand that obeys me. I went over and over every letter of every word until I could write the man's hand. Not an imitation of it, monsieur, not that, but the very hand itself. The very hand that Blackford writes with his own fingers. And it was well for I was able to get the child all that Blackford had, beyond his debts, by a letter that no man could know that Blackford did not write. I knew that he did not write it, said Abner. The old man smiled. You jest, monsieur, he said. Blackford himself could not tell the writing from his own. I could not, nor can any living man. That is true, replied Abner, 
The letter is in Blackford's hand, as he would have written it with his own fingers. It is no imitation, as you say. It is the very writing of the man. And yet he did not write it. And when I saw it, I knew that he did not. The old man's face was incredulous. How could you know that, monsieur? he said. My uncle took the letter which my father had received out of his pocket and spread it out on the table. I will tell you, he said, how I knew that Blackford did not write this letter, although it is in his very hand. When my brother Rufus showed me this letter, and I read it, I noticed that there were words misspelled in it. Well, that of itself was nothing, for the deaf-mute did not always spell correctly. It was the manner in which the words were misspelled. Under the old system, when a deaf-mute was taught to write, he was taught by the eye. Consequently, he writes words as he remembers them to look, and not as he remembers them to sound. His mistakes, then, are mistakes of the eye, and not of the ear. And in this he differs from every man who can hear. For the man who can hear, when he is uncertain about the spelling of a word, spells it as it sounds, phonetically, using not a letter that looks like the correct one, but a letter that sounds like it, using S for C and O for U, a thing no deaf-mute would ever do in this world, because he does not know what letters sound like. Consequently, when I saw the words in this letter misspelled by sound, when I saw that the person who had written this letter remembered his word as a sound, and by the arrangement of the letters in it was endeavoring to indicate that sound, I knew he could hear. The old man did not reply, but he rose and stood before my uncle. He stood straight and fearless, his long white hair thrown back, his bronzed throat exposed, his face lifted, and his eyes calm and level, like some ancient druid among his sacred oak trees. And I crowded my face against the cracked panel, straining to hear what he would say. Monsieur, he said, I have not done an act of justice, not as men do it, but as the providence of God does it. With care and with patience I have accomplished every act, so that to the eyes of men it bore the relation and aspect of God's providence. And all who saw were content but you. You have pried and ferreted behind these things, and now you must bear the obligations of your knowledge. He spread out his hands toward the sleeping girl. Shall this child grow up to honor in ignorance, or in knowledge go down to hell? Shall she know what her mother was, and what her father was, and what I am, and be fouled by the knowledge of it? And shall she be stripped of her inheritance, and left not only outlawed, but paupered? And shall I go to the hangman, and she to the street? These are things for you to decide, since you would search out what was hidden, and reveal what was covered. I leave it in your hands. And I, replied Abner, rising, leave it in God's. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone more distinguished in the field of Romani scholarship than Dr. Ian Hancock, who is not only the first Romani in the United Kingdom to earn a doctorate, he has also published over 300 books and articles in a career spanning half a century, 
served on the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council, and helped found the Romani Archives and Documentation Center during his long tenure at the University of Texas, Austin. In 2019, he was decorated with the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II for his contributions to Romani studies and Creole linguistics. Since the character of the mountebank, who is central to the Uncle Abner story you just heard, is heavily implied by Post to be a gypsy, we thought it would be a good idea to talk to someone like Dr. Hancock about what that really means. Before our interview, he directed me to his book, We Are the Romani People, which is meant to be a broad introduction to the issues affecting Romani culture and history. I read it from cover to cover in a weekend and was blown away, not only by the wide range of topics in the book, but by the staggering amount of what I didn't know about Romani experience through the centuries. What follows is part of our conversation. Can you share with me your proudest achievement when it comes to working within the field of Romani history and culture? Two things I've worked towards. One, bringing a clear understanding and acknowledgement of the Nazi genocide of Roma. And secondly, trying to present a truer picture of who we are and what we are as opposed to the literary gypsy that most people are familiar with. But there's still a lot to be done in both of those areas. Yes, I can imagine. It certainly doesn't happen overnight. Just the other day, as a matter of fact, I was online and I saw someone's description of themselves in a social media profile as a wandering gypsy. And I thought, certainly your text made me think of that in a whole new light about how you casually throw those terms around. You know, I was thumbing through a magazine just this morning, less than an hour ago, and there is an article entitled Gypsies, a Living Satire on Civilization. And I thought, would any other minority population be presented in that way, in that kind of language? So the the, the struggle uh, certainly is not over to dispel the Hollywood gypsy identity. And you've spent a great deal of your career working with these problems. At what point did you decide this was something that you had to be writing about, something you had to be working toward? Well, as a child, I was in a Romani family, but I wasn't particularly knowledgeable about our real history. Actually, I didn't know much about it at all or anything about the problems worldwide. Certainly, I was born in uh, Britain, and there is a substantial prejudice there, but uh, I was not aware of anything on a global scale. But then I read a short news item in a newspaper called The Evening Standard about a Romani family. The wife was going into labor and the husband was trying to bring the trailer to a hospital. He had to pull over by the side of the road, but the police came. And this was back in, I guess, around 1968, when it was simply legal if you were a Romani person. Uh, in a trailer, you were supposed to settle on one of just 15 sites up and down the British Isles where you could stop permanently. But they took the children. I, I forget the details. I've written about it. But the thing is, it kind of woke me up to the very real situation. I lived in a house, but I thought, well, what if that was even a relative of mine? 
it really woke me up. And so I got a hold of the London telephone directory and I found something called the National Gypsy Education Council. And they invited me to a meeting. It was in 1971. I got involved. Now, I have to give you a little background there because I was also fortunate in being admitted into London University's School of Oriental and African Studies because by this time I lived in a rooming house where there were a lot of West African people living in the same building, and I would hang out with them, and I learned their language pretty well. So I was exposed to the black struggle at that time, and I think that provided the impetus. I learned a lot by seeing how African or Afro-Brits mostly were dealing with their situation. I was told by other Roma when I got my doctorate, you have an obligation, not a choice. You are educated. So few of us are educated. You have an obligation to join in the effort. I didn't really need any prompting, and that's how I got into it. And your background is in linguistics, correct? Yes. How has that informed your work moving forward? Although my degree is in African linguistic structures, my specialization was and is in languages of the African diaspora, which means restructured overseas black language, for example, Gullah on our East Coast. And the language that I learned to speak was a Creole language spoken in Sierra Leone. It's a diaspora language. It was brought over the Atlantic. Millions of people speak related languages, but Romani, my language, is also a diaspora language. And I became interested in a kind of academic way in how a population of a fair size, there are more of us in Europe than there are, say, Swedes or Norwegians, but we have no country, no government, no military, no industry, anything like that. Wherever we are, we don't really belong. And so we're pushed here and there, and it's this forced movement that has been transformed into the romantic wanderlust that we're supposed to have. That's not why we had to keep moving, believe me. So how does a population maintain its identity without that sort of stability? There are quite a lot of populations that are sort of rootless, at least physically. So that would be the bridge with my interest. The, the linguistic side of it, at least. And of course, you've written about this in quite a large number of texts, and a lot of them have this academic approach that you mentioned. And the book that you directed me to, to gain some background for our discussion, is your text, We Are the Romani People, which is not written with that same academic approach. So what inspired you to take the non-academic approach to that particular book? First of all, Almost every book on Romani people, usually advertised as books on gypsies, has been written by a non-Romani author. There are very few, although the number is growing now, but there are very few books written from the inside. They are almost entirely from outside observation. And a lot of them, perhaps most of them, are written by people who actually never met any 
Roma, face to face. So I thought I should write one, but I should also direct it at teachers and journalists because it's a short book. It's a simple book. It has questions at the end of each that teachers could use. And and I'm happy to say that it is used in some of the colleges now as a textbook for Romney Studies courses. Something you point out early in the book is the proper pronunciation of Romney, similar Mm -hmm. to Hominy in English. Right. Something something that I noticed is that when I started to do online searches, even from very official dictionaries like Macmillan to Merriam-Webster, they yielded a wide variation of pronunciation on that word from the way that you gave it, Romani, to Romani, to Romani. These were from fairly well-respected sources. So where can people go who are new to studying Romani culture? Where can they go online or, or elsewhere to find reliable information and not run into a lot of these misconceptions or, or mispronunciations in some cases? The pronunciation Romani is common, I think, because of an association with roaming around. Actually, when we use the word in the language itself, it doesn't sound like that either. Um, <laughs> but at least the stress is it's Romanit, the way we say it, Romanit. Okay. Also, the British spelling is with a Y at the end. The UN spelling, because we managed to get official in the UN and the EU and so on, and it's with an I. But the reason for the different pronunciations is probably because whoever suggested such a pronunciation has never heard the word spoken. And because if they have, there are some dialects, the Hungarian Romani dialect of the language puts the stress in the middle, Romani. Romani is the one most widely used, and it's probably advisable to use it because we are often, the word is thought to refer to Romanians, and that has actually been a bit of a problem with the U.S. Census because Census Bureau analysts would see Romani, if Romani Americans have responded and they put Romani, that would get included in as Romanian. So before we go into detail about how the Romani people have been portrayed in literature and entertainment, I'd love to take a moment to talk about who the Romani people are because there are so many myths when it comes to Romani history. And this is something you cover in detail in several of your books. But in sort of a short version, can you briefly describe what we do know at this point about the origins of the Romani people and their migration into the West? The history starts about a thousand years ago at a time when the leader of a a very large Islamic empire, the Ghaznavid Empire, Mohammed of Ghazni, wanted to expand eastwards into India, out of what today would be Afghanistan. And the Indian response was to assemble troops in different places to resist the Ghaznavids, but they lost over about a quarter of a century and about 18 different raids Almost every one of them was a victory for the Ghaznavids, which is why Northwest India is Islamic now, Pakistan, Kashmir. The Indian troops, if they weren't killed, were taken with their camp followers. And that's important because the camp followers, the service providers, included women. But the Ghaznavids were in turn defeated by the Seljuks. And the Seljuks, another 
Islamic Empire, took them further west and defeated Armenia. Armenia is at the eastern end of Anatolia, which is where Turkey is. And here they established a small sultanate called the Sultanate of Rum. And the Indians were still a mixed people. Not a single ethnic or linguistic Indian people, but representing several who had come out of that military background. Children are being born surrounded by a number of other languages, especially Greek and Armenian. So those languages have fed into the emergence of a native language for the children of that mixed Indian population. Then as time goes by, the Muslims, this time the Ottomans, the Ottoman Turks, are spreading their influence towards the West. And they take over the whole of Byzantium, which is Istanbul now. And a lot of the people who lived there who were not Muslims were pushed or fled up across into Europe. And this is when our ancestors entered the West. What's important and what we know now is that this did not happen overnight. It happened maybe over a 200-year period, which means the first wave of people that crossed over into Europe came in earlier and went further and lost contact with the people who came behind them. The last wave in history, at least, didn't go very far at all because they were kept in the Balkans and were made into slaves because they brought with them especially metalworking skills that were desperately needed. The manpower in that part of Europe had been depleted through the Crusades. There was a desperate need for artisans. And so valuable were those people that the laws changed to make them property and no longer employees. And that situation of slavery did not end until the middle of the 19th century. So we're looking at a population that has the same history up until the gateway to Europe. Once crossing over, different groups at different times are going off in different directions, which means that Romanis in, say, Finland or Russia today and Romanis in Spain or Portugal have been separated from each other by hundreds of miles and hundreds of years. And what's remarkable is that so much of shared language and culture has survived. It's incredible how much of this sort of mythology has been built up about the Romani origins, how quote-unquote mysterious, and yet what you were able to tell me in just a few minutes contains so much historical specificity. Is there any major mystery that remains at this point about where Romani people and culture originate from, or have we pretty much figured this out? We've pretty much figured it out. DNA has helped a lot, but it's not just history and language. It's also the culture, and there are remnants of the caste system in conservative Romani culture, which places a a social barrier between us and them, which would be Roma and non-Roma. And of course, when you do have cultural barriers, they're necessary in order to protect your identity, but they also 
create suspicion. And I have, I usually will and give talks, I also draw a parallel with the Jewish experience because Orthodox Jews have the same sort of barriers in place where you can't share food with outsiders, you can't marry outsiders, you can't put your kids next to their kids. And, and these are still very strongly there. But like I say, they feed into suspicion and antagonism. You must be hiding something. What are you up to? You're always moving around. You must be spies for the other side. That was very much an argument during the Balkan Wars, during the Nazi period. And what I just sent off to Greece a few days ago was an affidavit, if you like. The head of one of the Greek organizations came to visit me uh, back in the 70s, and I got him to talk about his experience in the Nazi period. He was a 15-year-old, but uh, he'd never talked about it. He started to cry. He was an elderly man. But he said we were being arrested because they said we were spies. We, we never stayed in one place. We must be lying for the other side. If you could boil down to a few sentences what Western culture tends to get so wrong about Romanes in fiction, what would you pinpoint those as? It is fantasizing. It is transferring wishes, I suppose. The romantic gypsy actually has a very real explanation. It came at a time when the Industrial Revolution changed the face of the land, especially in Western Europe, and created an underclass, a labor class. And you read the novels from that period describing the Victorian horrors, the London labor and the London poor, uh, little kids being sent down coal mines and so on. And they're emerged a kind of longing for a lost time, a pre-industrial, clean, rural agricultural time with shepherdesses and windmills and so on. And who represented that better than anyone else were the gypsies who lived outside on the land and were nature's children. And it's also tied in with the growing concentration and emergence of racism and the superiority of certain human groups over other human groups. Because of colonization and European colonization of non-Western countries, and here were these dark-skinned aliens in desperate need of Christian salvation. So there was missionary activity even in Britain, going out to look for gypsies to save them. But there was also this notion that so many of these gypsies appear to be mixed with white people. And of course, they're not the real gypsies anymore. The real gypsies uh, live in horse-drawn wagons and play violins and steal chickens and babies. <laughs> um, but the actual Romney population was unaware of this. They weren't in school. They couldn't read. A lot of us still can't read very well. And so this literary gypsy took on a life of its own. And that's where that comes from. Now, to relearn, not to relearn, but to learn for the first time who Romani people really are and what our real history is, Holocaust, slavery, all kinds of horrible things have happened over the past centuries, that's kind of gloomy. <laughs> the, 
the <laughs> literary gypsy is fascinating. Everybody wants to be a gypsy because you're free. You don't have to abide by rules. It's like the thing, I think it's in that book. Gypsyitis is a Walt Disney creation of where we're fancy free and, and love to run among the daisies. And this really hurts because it's not serious. And if we are not taken seriously, then the problems we're dealing with will never be taken seriously. So the literary gypsy is sort of this projection of all of these latent feelings from mechanization, industrialization, imperialism, just sort of this melting pot of Western psychological desires that gets projected onto a people wholesale, more or less. Yes. There's a place, I suppose, for Esmeralda. There's a place for Carmen. As long as we know who the real Romani people are, we watch movies about the mafia. There's dozens of movies about the mafia, gangsters, organized crime. But we also know about real Italians and what Italians have accomplished. So we can put the mafia image in its place. But we don't have that parallel in our case, because people are not aware of what we've accomplished and who we really are and how we love our children and so on and so on. Incidentally, speaking of Esmeralda in Hunchback, she has been transformed into a Romani girl in Hollywood, in the cartoon. In fact, she was a white girl who was stolen by gypsies in the original story. And that is another sort of trope where girls who live in a gypsy camp turn out to not be gypsy girls after all, but non-gypsy girls who were stolen, which then allows the hero, the white hero, to marry her rather than marrying her if she were, in fact, a Romani girl. One of the interesting things that caught my eye when I was reading with relationship to this Uncle Abner story that's the subject of this episode in the podcast. I was looking through and I'm encountering these literary stereotypes that are listed, and I'm thinking, well, that doesn't really fit the quote-unquote gypsy character as he's presented. Melville Davison Post doesn't ever actually call him a gypsy, but he gives these sort of several clues. There's a lot of the standard tropes that you're describing. He -hmm. travels in a wagon. He's a sort of a carnival entertainer, if you will, very skilled with knives, very proud wanderer. And I wasn't encountering any of the tropes that I thought would fit him until I hit upon the noble savage. And uh, that's something I've always seen applied to Native Americans in literature as written by Europeans and white Americans, last of the Mohicans, that kind of thing. But I hadn't thought of it as something that would apply to Romani depictions in literature as well. So some of these things, when they come across, it's this character is, he's sympathetic in the Uncle Abner story. He's not presented as a villain, but he nevertheless fits this stereotypic mold. So why should those particular stereotypes, why do those need to still be resisted and debunked? even though they're somewhat favorable? They don't necessarily have to be debunked if they're not harmful. But again, it's about will people be able to see it for what it is and not Mm. as a character representing the entire 12 or 13 million brownies in the whole world. 
but just a character. And secondly, does a gypsy character in a story add to the story? Is it necessary that he be a Romani character? Or is that just included for color? Would the story still hold without that character? Or if you made that character Irish or Zulu or something else? Years ago, I got a phone call, believe it or not, from Woody Allen. He was doing another film, which he had put a gypsy character. And I'm using gypsy to mean that, not to mean Romani, but this fictionalized image. And I said, if your character were not a Romani person, not a gypsy, but say Swedish or something, would it change the story? And he said, no, I'll, I'll take it out. And he did. It, the character never appeared. That's a great litmus test for yeah. people who are considering putting such a character in their fiction. Kind of moving past the fiction and, and to the ways that this fiction does impact people in their real lives. Have you ever, in your personal experience, had an interaction where once someone learned your background, they made assumptions about you based on those stereotypes? Oh, for heaven's sake, yes. Absolutely. My 46 years as a professor at the University of Texas were not easy. And my educated colleagues would make remarks. Some were hurtful, some were meant in jest. But remarks that they would never make to a Hispanic colleague or an African-American colleague. I'm actually writing in my autobiography about my experience. Years ago, when I still lived in London, and I had recently married, and the landlord found out, somebody told him what I was, and he stopped me in the hallway when I was coming home, and he said, if I had known you were a gypsy, I wouldn't have rented the room to you. I was in Poland with other Roma, actually at a high-level meeting. And we went into a restaurant, me and, and other Romani leaders from Europe. We sat there for a long time, not being served. They knew what we were and didn't serve us. We got up and walked out and didn't get a meal. And that was, what, in the 1990s? In one chapter of the Romani people entitled Explaining Anti-Gypsyism, you point out that in many countries, laws were passed forbidding Romanis to settle, which is part of the cause of this wandering gypsy stereotype to begin with. Are there other examples of this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where the discrimination itself created the conditions for the stereotype? What I will say send you, once we're off the phone, is a list of American law statutes directed at gypsies. It doesn't say Romanis. Forbidding people either to put up a permanent residence in county or a state or to engage in business. And that's an eye-opener for a lot of people from uh, a lot of different states as well. Yeah, that was actually one of my questions in a moment was going to be, has the Romani experience in the United States been different historically than in Europe? Well, there is a difference. There is a difference. Really, going back to the 12th 
1200s, 1300s, when we started to enter the West, we were pretty much entering the white world as a people coming from India. So we were the first people of color in any large number to come into the West. But North America, Argentina, Brazil, Canada, these are colonized countries consisting of people from all over the world. So it's easy to be invisible in North America because if you're light-skinned, you pretend you're white. If you're darker, down here anywhere in Texas, you can pretend to be Mexican or South American. And Americans, I think more than Europeans, are much more familiar with the unreal image. So they could be living next door to a Romani family, a Romani American family, and not know who they were because that family wouldn't say, hey, we are Romanis, we are gypsies. And the white family would be expecting bandanas and earrings and you know, bare feet and things. So they wouldn't be seeing what they expect to see. You quote in your book, in 2001, the Council of Europe, quote, issued a blistering condemnation of Europe's treatment of the Roma gypsy community, saying they are subject to racism, discrimination, and violence. Has this situation changed at all in the last two decades since that quote was issued? It has not. It's just not really newsworthy now. Other things make the headlines. But Nexus Lexus news source sends information every day, some of which refers to attacks on Romani camps and Romani individuals. But it doesn't get into the newspapers anymore. It's routine, practically. And other things. Now there are attacks on Muslims in Europe and attacks from Muslims, as we've seen recently. But very many hundreds of thousands of Roma in Southern Europe are Muslims themselves, so that they get it coming and going. In Poland, it was a, a Council of Europe uh, conference in Warsaw, taking the elevator up in the hotel where we were all staying. The cleaning ladies wouldn't get in the elevator with us. How are... Romani individuals and organizations working to meet these challenges at present? There is a wonderful organization based in Budapest called the European Roma Rights Center. And it's not a Romani organization, but it has Romanis involved. It monitors what's going on. If you were to go to the ERRC.org website, that is a very important organization. There are others. We now have a cultural archive based in Germany with the German government's backing, collecting testimonies and materials from all over. We have an online university. We've got an organization of professional Roma. There are a couple of organizations in this country. So things are happening slowly. This has been an amazing conversation. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate what you're doing. I really do. As Dr. Hancock points out, obtaining justice, equality, and recognition is still a daily struggle for many Romani across the globe. In his book, The Pariah Syndrome, originally published in the 1970s, he highlights many laws in U.S. states 
that were still on the books a decade after the Civil Rights Act. Laws in Mississippi, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Georgia, Texas, Indiana, and more. A law still in effect in Maryland in the 1970s stated that gypsies must pay jurisdictions a license fee of $1,000 before settling or doing business. When any gypsy is arrested, all his property and all the property of members of any group with which he may be traveling can be confiscated and sold to pay any fine a court may levy against the arrested gypsy. Sheriffs are paid a $10 bounty for any gypsy they arrest who pays the $1,000 fee after he is arrested. New Jersey repealed its last known discriminatory law, which specifically targeted Romney, as recently as 1998. In November 2020, Harvard study interviewing 363 Romney Americans found that two-thirds of them, quote, perceived the portrayal of Romney people in media, including film and television, as profoundly derogatory and dehumanizing. Xenophobic features decrying some sort of gypsy invasion still sometimes surface in mainstream news outlets, such as in 2017, when 40 Romani seeking asylum were placed in the small town of California, Pennsylvania. The number of Romani out there advocating and educating is growing, however, and the information is increasingly out there to educate us on the rich tapestry of real Romani culture, not just the Esmeraldas and the Carmens, or Post's Mountebank, for that matter. It makes for a good mystery, but, well, it's not real. Thank you again to Dr. Hancock for joining us. For more episodes of Mysterious Mountains, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit wvhumanities.org for links to our podcast page and more content. You can also follow the West Virginia Humanities Council on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The West Virginia Humanities Council is the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The council is an independent, nonpartisan nonprofit supported by the NEH, the state of West Virginia, contributions from the private sector, and people like you. Its statewide mission is to support a vigorous educational program in the humanities across West Virginia. This audio production of Mysterious Mountains is copyright 2021 by the West Virginia Humanities Council. Our theme song is Appalachian Impressions Movement 2, A Train Through Snowy Thurmond by Matthew Jackford, used with permission.